welcome to Deal of the Week. I'm Alex Barinka sitting in for Ed Hammond. You'll remember me from our past IPO coverage here on the Deal of the Week podcast. And I'm excited to say that you'll probably be hearing more from me as I'm taking over our tech M&A coverage here at Bloomberg. And I'll be moving out to our West Coast to be in the seat of the action. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we are actually going to look back on the year of 2017 in the M&A landscape. Since I haven't been in this world very long, I have two experts here with me today. Team leader of the deals team, Lizzie Fournier, joins us. Lizzie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And Matt Monks, who is our uh, whip smart deals reporter, is here on my right. Lizzie, I'll start with you. Looking back on the past year, what would you say kind of defined 2017 from a deals perspective here in the U.S.? 2017 here has definitely been sort of bookended by things that Trump has done. We had the the inauguration back in January. We came into the year with sort of some certainty about who was going to be in the White House, but very little certainty about what they were going to do. Huge questions around things like tax reform and antitrust. And we kind of ended the year with a bit more certainty on those things. So in the last few weeks, you've seen the tax bill making its way through the House and through the Senate, and you've had the lawsuit filed against the AT&T Time Warner deal. I don't think think that ending was quite what people expected back at the beginning of the year. But that sort of encapsulated the year in M&A for us. And and Trump has kind of come into the business world, followed by basically this cloud of uncertainty that you're talking about. When you are thinking about companies making these big strategic decisions, Matt, have you seen uh, kind of what, what are their kind of pain points that have played out due to this Trump uncertainty around whether it be tax reform or, you know, where the economy is going to continue to go. So earlier this year, I was chasing some insurance deals and I, I caught wind of a couple transactions that actually died in that sector the, the week that Trump was elected. Uh, the, the reason being, you know, it created uncertainty uh, around what it meant for uh, taxes and also uh, offshoring businesses. Uh, that's just a specific example of um, the kind of uncertainty that uh, he interjected into the marketplace that did, you know, translate into a couple deals falling through in that particular sector. When you say uh, offshoring businesses, it seems like Trump's definitely used his kind of uh, bully Twitter pulpit to rail on uh, business based outside of the U.S., companies that are choosing to base outside of the U.S. Break that down a little bit for us, how that nationalism, let's say, that Trump likes to play up has impacted some of the the M&A scenarios. Well, nobody wants to... uh catch themselves in uh, the president's, uh, I guess, what, uh, Twitter gauge, you know, <laughs> you know, the optics are bad. So uh, if you're going to do a transaction that, you know, may involve you moving offshore, uh, you have to be very careful about how you structure it and how you sell it to the marketplace, because you do not want to uh, incur the wrath of a uh, President Trump. And the wrath of President Trump has definitely been focused on this AT&T Time Warner deal. Lizzie, is, is that mostly based around the fact that he seems to have this personal vendetta against the media and CNN in general? Or is this something bigger? How do you think people in the deals world, which seems to be at least a little bit more, um, let's say, less uh, less emotionally based than Trump has been, how do you reconcile the language that he's thrown out toward the DOJ and what's played out with this deal? It's kind of hard to know. And I think that's something that that participants in this market have found really difficult as well, sort of gauging how much influence he has, whether his sort of statements actually turn into actions on the part of deals. I mean, in theory, he doesn't have sort of jurisdiction over the, the um, Department of Justice directly. They make decisions independently. But I had a look back at some of our sort of 
stories from the start of the year, and I'm not going to name any names, but we had a, a sort of M&A um, deal maker saying that they thought that Trump would be more likely to loosen constraints on domestic deals and go up, be a bit tougher on cross-border deals. That's not what we've seen. AT&T, Time Warner, it's a domestic deal. It was one that no one expected to run into any kind of big antitrust uh, problems. But it's kind of shown that, that anything's possible. And I think it's probably put a dampener on other people trying other big deals. And just to put that in perspective, and and I'll throw out today's date. We're on December 8th today because, you know, things can change on an hourly basis here in the world of M&A. But as of uh, today, AT&T is still committing to the Time Warner deal. The U.S. Justice Department's antitrust lawsuit to block AT&T from buying Time Warner is set to go to trial March 19th. That's a later date than the companies had sought to begin this kind of big, epic legal fight with the government. So in the meantime, it seems like these two companies will have to extend the self-imposed April 22nd deadline to complete this deal. And remember, we're currently sitting at an $85.4 billion check size to get this thing done. So it seems like the DOJ will definitely be a factor. And and in my new gig now covering tech, you've got this whole Broadcom Qualcomm biggest deal in tech potentially if it goes through situation looming with, as you'll recall, Qualcomm is trying to get through regulatory approvals from now still Europe and China for another acquisition, an acquisition of NXP. Is this DOJ Time Warner decision going to be a litmus test for these mega deals like Broadcom, Qualcomm? How do you think folks in this world are thinking about uh, this this situation? Um, I think that we don't know yet whether AT&T and Time Warner is going to be the exception or the rule. Uh, earlier this year, we had a couple large strategic combinations that um, made it through uh, without any kind of uh, regulatory or political um, contestation. Which ones uh, come to mind? Uh, like uh, Discovery Scripts, uh, Amazon Whole Foods. You know, these are large strategic combinations that may or may not, you know, raise some anti-competitive questions, but and they made it through. And do those, I mean, do, I hear the term, these vertical acquisitions, exactly. right? Break that down for us. Why is that so important for something like, let's say, an Amazon Whole Foods? Uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, pure play companies buying someone similar, right, and, and doing something that's already in their ballywick versus uh, companies going outside and doing something, you know, related to what they're doing, but may also relate, uh, give them more power over customers and pricing, that sort of thing. But if you're already, uh, a simpler way to think about it, if you're already doing this thing, you're just buying something that you already do. That's kind of like a vertical kind of pure play acquisition. And we've seen, you know, those go through for the most part. Which, again, it seems to be why some folks are surprised about uh, what's going on with AT&T Time Warner. So to, so to kind of set the stage here for 2017, it seems like what y'all are saying, we have Trump setting off the year. We have that book ended by this new revelation in the antitrust uh, sector regarding this AT&T and Time Warner deal. Let's get a little bit granular on to a few of the other things that went on in 2017. Matt, as you've been covering uh, and thinking back on what you've covered this year is there a certain deal to you that really stands out as indicative of what the environments look like for M&A in the past 12 months? Well, within the sectors I cover, uh, there's one transaction that comes to mind that I also think speaks to trends that have occurred in other sectors, and that would be um, Sempra Energy's acquisition of Encore, the uh, Texas utility owned by the bankrupt Energy Future Holdings. It just had a lot of different uh, uh, threads to it that line up with things going on in other markets. Uh, there's private equity involvement. There's activists behind it. And Sempra is a, an example of a company going a little bit out of its comfort zone. It's a 
California gas utility buying uh, an electric company in Texas. That doesn't sound like that different, but it actually is. And th- that's indicative of uh, other companies going out of their company comfort zone and doing something different in search of growth. And that's what I was going to ask. Why? Why is somebody going to kind of venture out something that's not their core competency? What's that going to add in terms of value creation for their shareholders? Well, it speaks of a, to a couple different things. CEO confidence, uh, availability of financing. Because that's uh, still cheap. Yes, exactly. Uh, and also, it also speaks to, you know, you don't think growth is just going to come from secular trends. You actually have to go out and grab it. And that's something that applies to multiple industries right now. When I do think, though, about what's gone on globally from a deals perspective, yes, there's obviously been some activity. We're here talking about it now in North America. But it does seem to be uh, maybe not quite as robust as people were expecting. And when you look at the numbers, it does seem like North America is down significantly compared to other regions. Lizzie, break it down for us on a global perspective. How does North America fit into the whole uh, the global landscape for M&A transactions? North America is basically dragging down the global numbers overall. I think global M&A, we're down, but only by about 11% or so this year. Uh, But in North America, that's almost a third, which is sort of a huge, huge difference. I mean, we've got to take into account we're coming off a couple of huge years for for M&A. But at the moment, we're we're looking at sort of the the leanest year since 2013. And I think what you're really missing here is the mega deals. This time last year, I think we had more than 10 deals had been announced that were worth more than $30 billion. This year, it's, it's three. Um, So a huge drop off. And you can see that that leaves a big, big gap to be filled in terms of volumes. And those mega deals, are they happening elsewhere? Europe has had a few. I mean, Europe's um, drastically sort of made up for the lag of um, activity happening in in North America. They're kind of propping up the global numbers. But generally, it's been been quieter for those big deals. And Matt, this this quietness around these mega deals, is that just because there aren't any out there? I guess, why do we not have kind of these big, you know, mega hunky mammoth of transactions happening in the past 12 months here? I think it basically speaks to the fact that we're kind of nearing the end of a boom M&A cycle. Large transactions tend to occur at the end of cycles. Um, you saw this uh, uh, in what the one prior to the financial crisis from uh, 2006, 2008. That was like the last big M&A boom that we had. In 2016, I mean, it was a banner year. We had something like four or five deals above $50 billion. Why do these transactions taper off at the end of an M&A cycle? Well, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons is it's a simple matter of uh, buyers get their fill, and there aren't that many companies that can do these types of mega transactions. When I do think of a sector, uh, a sector that's on my mind lately that has it, there haven't been a ton of uh, mega transactions, internet companies, technology. Lizzie, when you look back at what's happened in the tech sector specifically, what did you see this year? What made it so different than 2014, 2015, 2016? So the tech sector has sort of traditionally been a hotbed for deals and for big deals. And up until a few weeks ago, we'd seen very little over about 5 billion in the industry, which is super unusual. Obviously, that was sort of changed by Broadcom's huge, you know, bigger than $100 billion offer for Qualcomm. But if if that goes ahead, it will be worth about a third of the total tech, more than a third of the total tech volume this year. So it's been super quiet in that sector. And there doesn't seem to be a sort of very clear reason why. Aside from Amazon, Whole Foods, I can't, you know, no kind of big double digit billion 
transactions come to mind for the likes of Facebook or Google or Apple. Do you think some of that is, again, driven from this tax-fueled uncertainty, driven uh, from this kind of uh, questions around whether or not there is some kind of repatriation holiday here in the U.S.? What's kind of, what do you think is behind this? Yeah, so as much as we've moved into a sort of new period of uncertainty with the antitrust stuff, we do seem to be making some progress towards more certainty on tax. Uh, But there's still sort of a big gap between the House and the Senate versions of the bill in terms of the kind of levy that's going to be applied on that money coming back. And you're right, these big tech companies are some of the biggest holders of that offshore cash. And it may be that next year, if they're given the opportunity to bring some of that back, we could see an uptick in deals. And and when I do talk to folks around this industry specifically about, you know, baking in kind of a 20 percent itch tax rate or repatriation holiday and having this cash on hand, there still is a question as to whether they would put that money to use in buying, uh, let's say, some of these unicorns, these private tech companies, or whether or not they deploy this to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends. Uh, it seems like there's still kind of a, a, um, a unfavorable valuation environment, let's say, for some of these tech companies. The strategics just don't want to play uh, to pay up. Lizzie, is this something that you've seen uh, in the past year as well? Yeah, I mean, I think valuations have got very high. Uh, as you well know, covering the IPO beat, we've got a ton of private companies that are um, have very, very high valuations based on private private valuation rounds. And I think the problem is translating those valuations into either a public market listing or an acquisition gets very difficult. And, and you know, in, in my past world and the world that I will continue to hold on to, because I will still be covering the biggest IPOs listing here in the U.S., it did, uh, it, this year was a bigger year for listings compared to 2016. But you have to remember, 2016 was a deplorable year, the worst since the recession, when it comes to newly listed U.S. companies. So the volume was up almost almost a little bit, but the value of stocks sold in the U.S. was up almost double. But in the tech sector specifically, the deals that folks will remember, Snap is still down more than 10% offer to date. Altice USA, the second biggest IPO of the year uh, behind Snap, is down almost 40% from its listing price. And then you have the uh, kind of terrible tale of Blue Apron, which is down more than 60% from when it listed in June. So for tech specific Specifically, um, it's actually been a year driven by uh, not too great poster art deals and also driven by a lot of Asian companies. The, the Chinese deal flow of companies coming to list in the U.S. has been huge this year, whether C-Limited, QDN, uh, Sogu, a lot of these kind of Chinese tech companies, fintech education companies, they're all looking to list here in the U.S. And I think that might continue into next year. But I won't get into that now. We will get to that in a future podcast here on Deal of the Week. Final thoughts here, Matt Monks. Uh, what is your kind of biggest takeaway for 2017? I think, all things considered, it's still a fairly robust year in a historical context and still a fairly strong year when you look at deal values and deal volumes, deal count and total value. Um, so I think it was a, a rather frothier year than you know, it might seem just in the context of what we're coming off of. Lizzie, thinking back to when you were having these conversations a year ago, did anything else particularly surprise you about how things played out in 2017? 
I think it was just the waiting game that was the biggest thing. Uh, we had conversations this time a year ago and people were citing uncertainty and they were unciting tax reform as the key things that they needed to know about. That continued through the first half of the year. And I think people just got tired of waiting. And that's why we saw this sort of flurry of deals towards the end of the year with the, the big deals like Broadcom, Qualcomm or Aetna and CVS tie up. I think people got tired of waiting. And then with the, the AT&T Time Warner decision, Yet another thing came down on them and gave them sort of more cause for concern. Um, so I think there's this sort of ongoing frustration mixed with a real desire to do things that's going to typify the year ahead. So a bit of frustration underlined by a bit of frothiness uh, all coming together with urgency to have to make the strategic decisions in this current environment. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you, Matt. For joining me today on Deal of the Week, be sure to uh, rate and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex Barinka. That's at A-L-E-X-B-A-R-I-N-K-A. Lizzie, where can they find you? I'm at EJ underscore Fournier. That's EJ underscore F-O-U-R-N-I-E-R. And Matt, where are you on Twitter? Matt Monks 123 Perfect. And be sure to follow at Bloomberg Deals for all of our deals coverage. And thank you for listening. 